Well, we are kicking off a brand new series this morning. We're going to take a look at really the life of maybe one of the greatest heroes in all of Scripture, David. Right? And I was thinking this past week, it's funny to me that, you know, human beings, we've, we've always had heroes. And for maybe the past 80 years or so, our culture has been really into superheroes, right? Comic book characters, superheroes. And y'all could agree, we're, we're like in the middle of a superhero mania right now. It's almost every single month, there's a new blockbuster film about somebody wearing tights with superpowers, you know, saving the world, right? We're just so into this. And I, I was reading an article this past week that, that really tried to get to the bottom of, of, of our fascination, with superheroes, and they made a really interesting point, and it stayed with me, but they said that there's this connection between the type of heroes that we really get into and we celebrate and that we enjoy and what's actually going on in the world at the time. And they pointed out that, that many of like the iconic superheroes that we love today were actually created in the late 1930s, early 1940s. Like, for instance, Superman, Right? Superman was actually created in 1939. Tell me, what was going on in the world in 1939? This is the Depression, right? Beginning of World War II. And during that time period, people were looking for symbols, you know, for, for things to put their, their hope in. They needed heroes that were, you know, faster than a speeding bullet, could jump over a building in a single bound. What's really fun, in, interesting to me is that Superman enjoyed kind of a renaissance during the, the late 70s and, and, and into the 80s. How many remember those Christopher Reeves movies? I grew up watching those. He's the reason why I had my Superman underwear, you know, when I was a kid, right? But what was going on during that time period? It's the second Cold War, right? The threat of nuclear war. Again, what kind of hero do we need in that moment? We, we need a hero that's stronger than a nuclear weapon. What's funny is that today, it's kind of hard to sell a Superman-type hero to people because he's too strong, right? He's, he's too good. Now, we, we, we like the anti-hero. We like the hero that's got some flaws, that has some weaknesses, that, that, that rises above all of their challenges to somehow do the right thing. And I'd argue that, you know, Superman's hard for us to buy into. They've tried the past several years remaking these movies, and it, we, aren't just, we aren't resonating with Superman the way that we used to. And I would argue that that's because of our constant media coverage, People that we become to admire, we know it's only a matter of time before we find out about something they did that wasn't, wasn't okay. And so we have a hard time believing that, that a hero like Superman can even exist. This is making sense. I thought it was a really fascinating point. And it, what, here's what it tells me. It tells me that the heroes you and I celebrate and the stories that we remember, they have a lot to say about the kind of people we want to be and the kind of lives that we want to live. That's really what this is all about. So for thousands of years, people have been looking to particular characters, heroes in the Bible, to learn from them and to see what does it mean to really live this life of faith. And maybe one of those heroes, the greatest hero of all, is, is David. It's this shepherd boy who somehow becomes the great king of Israel. And there's so much scripture devoted to the life of David. And he's really unique in the sense that we get kind of this two, two-sided view of David's life. On the one hand, we have over 60, we have 61 chapters of narrative in the Bible that covers the life of David. And it gives us this sort of outside looking in perspective. We see David's life from the outside. But we also have somewhere around 73 to 76, give or take, Psalms that are attributed to David, which is really a picture of his inner life, his thought life, his, his emotion. So it's this really unique picture we get of this person, David. 
And he's one of the most beloved characters in all the Bible. And I would argue that that's because not only is he somebody for us to admire, somebody for us to look up to, but he's somebody that we can relate to. Because, I mean, David, he did some remarkable things, right? He slayed the giant. I mean, he did some incredible things. But at the same time, David blew it. I mean, he messed up, not just once. He messed up a bunch, perhaps in even some more remarkable ways. Eugene Peterson, who is the author of, of the message translation of the Bible, he wrote this really great book on David. It's called Leap Over a Wall. But here's what he says. I love how he captures this about David. He says, in the company of David, we don't feel inadequate because we know that we could never do it that well. It's just the opposite. In the company of David, we find someone who does it as badly or as worse or worse than we do. And who in the process, though, doesn't quit, doesn't withdraw from God. I love this part. David isn't an ideal life, but an actual life. David is a person on whom nothing of God is lost. We read David to cultivate a sense of reality for a true life, an honest life, a God-aware and God-responsive life. David's life, when you get into it, it's not the ideal life. It's a real life. And it is there for us in the pages of Scripture, not, not just to admire, but to find ourselves in, to learn from, and the hopes from, from following his lead and chasing after the heart of God. Now, I want to begin this series, and maybe this is a little backwards, but I actually want to begin by taking a look at how David is remembered. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to zero in on some specific moments in the life of David. We don't have enough time to hit all of them. I think somebody's got to make a movie about this guy. It'd be like Lord of the Rings. and There's so much material on the life of David. We're not going to hit it all, but we're going to zero in on some of the big places. But this morning, what I want to do is kind of take a step back and look at his life from sort of a big picture perspective to try to get at the bottom of what is it that makes this character so great. Y'all with me? Make some noise. Come on now. All right, so let's go back to, I like that, Psalm 78. Let's go back to that. We just had it read to us, but I want to read it again. In verse 70, it says, speaking of God, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens, from tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. Here's verse 72. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. Y'all say that, integrity of heart. And with skillful hands, he led them. Now, this is not one of the Psalms that David authored. That'd be convenient, right? What can I say about myself, right? Integrity of heart, that sounds pretty good. Let's put that down. No, this isn't one of the ones that he wrote. I can't imagine a better thing to be said about a king, about a leader. And he shepherded them. He led them with integrity of heart. And it's even more remarkable when you consider everything that comes before this section of the Psalm, because the first 69 verses of this Psalm aren't as positive but all throughout this psalm, the author is being honest about all the ways in which Israel, the people of God, sort of dropped the ball. And how they lost the plot. How they, how they struggled to live in response to God's grace, God's mercy, God's call on their life. To not just be any nation, but to be, be, be the nation that shows the rest of the world what this God is like. They, they failed. They, they, they didn't stay true to this. And over and over again, the author highlights all of this. Like, I mean, for instance, in verse 55, I'll just read you a portion of this. Speaking about God, it says, He drove out nations before them and allotted their, their lands to them as an inheritance. He settled the tribes of Israel in their homes. And so he brought these people back. And it, the way the Bible describes it is a land flowing of milk and honey. Everybody say, mmm, right? 
I mean, it's a good place to live. God brought them there. He settled them there. But then it goes on to say this, but they put God to the test and rebelled against the most high. They did not keep his statutes. Like their ancestors, they were disloyal and faithless, as unreliable as a faulty bow. That's nice, right? I mean, this is the spirit, kind of the feel of the entire psalm until it starts talking about David. See, David, despite all of his flaws and failures, we're going to look at some of those later on in the series, David had what the rest of Israel didn't, integrity of heart. Which I think helps us to see why David was remembered. I mean, David was remembered more for his character than his accomplishments. I'm going to say that again. David was remembered more for his character than his accomplishments. David was a God chaser. In fact, perhaps the most famous way in which he's remembered, y'all fill in the blank on this. David was known as a man after what? God's own heart. He's a God chaser. Now, real quick, what, what this doesn't mean is that David had to chase down God because God was either hard to find or God was playing hard to get. It's not God. God's not hard to find. In fact, later on in the scriptures, in the book of Acts, it even tells us that God is not far from each of us, but it's in God that we live and we move and we have our being. At the same time, God is not playing hard to get. I mean, Jesus introduces us to a God who, who would tear apart the house looking for one lost coin, right? Who would leave the 99 sheep to go and find the lost sheep. This is a God who's been chasing you down since the day you were born. God's not playing hard to get. What does, what's this mean? Well, a person after somebody's own heart is still, it's an idiom that we still use today. We say this still today. Right? To, to be a person after somebody else's heart, it means that not only do you know them in, in a really intimate way, but at the same time, you're, you're about what they're about. Right? You're, you're a kindred spirit. You're passionate about the things that they're passionate about. You're into the things that they're into. Right? So if you're, you're a person after my own heart, then man, you really want some tacos right now. I'm going to tell you right now, something like Cantina 76 tacos. Anybody ever been there yet? Downtown? Come on, give me an amen to that. Whew. Man, I love tacos, right? So if you're after my heart, you, you like tacos, right? So, so what it means when it says that, that David was a man after God's heart, here's what it meant. Y'all, y'all hear this. Here's what that meant. David wanted to know God. Not, not just know about God. Not just know about God or hear about God through the pastor on Sunday mornings. David like wanted to know God. At the same time, you know what? David wanted to share the heart of God. David wanted to care about the things that God cared about. David wanted to see the world and the people in it the way God saw. That's what it means. It means that he's a man after God's own heart. It means that he wants to know God and to be made like God. Listen to what he says in Psalm 63. He says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. This verse right here gets me. Verse three, because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. That hits me hard because you know what I'm interested in, God? It's out of an effort to preserve my life. Like when things are wrong. God, where are you at? Am I right? What's David saying here? Forget all that. Forget all that. Man, your love is better than life. That's a powerful thing to say. Wouldn't you agree? So tell me, what, what does David want? 
More than anything, what does David want? It's the heart of God. I'm going to ask you a question this morning, but I want you to know I've been asking myself all week. It's a simple question, but it's not an easy answer. What do you want? What do you truly want? More than anything else, what do you want? Don't give me this underscore answer. I want you to be honest. If you were to really search your heart, what is that thing that you want more than anything else? Or maybe ask it this way. Here's a way to look at it to help keep us honest, all right? If we were to look at the way you lived, we were to listen to the words that you said, we were to see how you spent your money, time, your resources, how you directed your passions, what broke your heart, what you got you excited, what would we say you wanted most? It's a sobering question, isn't it? And it bothers me. And there's this encounter with Jesus in the Gospels between Jesus and his blind man. And of course, Jesus had all sorts of encounters with blind people in the Gospels. This one's different though. It's unique because of a question that Jesus asks this man. He asks him this. He says, what do you want me to do for you? That question haunts me. It's kind of scary. Because I'm afraid of what I'd say. It's like being in the presence of Jesus. I have to believe that would, would somehow cultivate some sense of honesty in me, right? And if Jesus, I'm standing there in front of Jesus, and he's asking me, what do you want me to do for you? And I have this chance for Jesus to do something in my life. I'm afraid of what I'd ask him. Maybe you can relate to this, because honestly, oftentimes, what I want and what I need, they aren't the same thing. You're all with me. You're not saying amen to that. That's stinging a little bit. stings, Right? And often what I want is way less than what God wants from me. And so in that moment, I have this opportunity. I'm afraid I'd blow it. I'd ask for something I really didn't need. What is it that you want more than anything else? Kierkegaard, great theologian, philosopher, once said this, purity of heart is to will the one thing. It's to will the one thing. To not be distracted by all sorts of other things. It's to will the one thing. It's to want the heart of God. What I'm coming to discover in a very real way is that you and I, if our lives are oriented around anything less than God and the things of God, particularly Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom of God, if our lives are oriented around anything less than that, then our lives and our stories will never be as good as they could be. I am convinced of that more now than ever. In fact, Oliver Wilde, Oscar Wilde once said it like this, the great playwright. He said there's two tragedies. There are two tragedies in life. Here's what they are. The first one is not getting what one wants. And the second is getting it. And this, of course, is powerfully illustrated by one of the greatest sketches on the futility of human existence ever shown on television. I grew up watching this every single Saturday morning, and it has impacted me in profound ways. I have, of course, talking about... The Roadrunner. Y'all remember watching this show, right? Man, it is such a powerful picture of, of really the human experience. And it's summed up perfectly in Wile E. Coyote's futile attempts to what? Catch that bird. It's like the same thing every single time he watched it, right? He had some, some trap, some gizmo from Acme. You think he'd quit on Acme after a while, right? 
And what happens? The bird's coming, he's going to catch it, and then something goes wrong with the contraption, the bird gets away. But what's he do the next day? He wakes up and he tries again, right? Now, somebody made a short, a video, and they put it on YouTube, and I hesitate in telling you to go watch it because it's pretty profane, but it's also really profound. And the video basically sort of asks the question, what would happen if Wile E. Coyote caught the Roadrunner? And so it sort of starts, like all the other episodes, he's got this contraption he's working on, right? And, and right as the roadrunner's coming, something's going wrong with it. The rope breaks, this big rock falls, and you think the bird's going to get away, but nope, the rock smashes the bird. And so he runs down, and he's like, I can't believe it. 20 years of my life trying to catch this bird, and I finally caught it. I can't believe it's happened. So it cuts, cuts to later that night. And he's sitting there with another coyote and he's cooked the bird and they're eating it together. And you know, he says to him, it's like, man, when you really work for your food, you really work for your food, it just tastes so much better, right? And then his friend asks him a question. He says, well, what do you think you're going to do now? And he's like, I don't know. Never actually thought about that. Like I, I never trained for anything else. It's the only skill set I have. Like I, I'm not passionate about anything else. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so then it cuts to like two weeks later, and he's you know he's sitting out sitting on the couch watching TV, and he just looks like he's bored to death. You know, two weeks later he's got a job at like a fast food restaurant, flip, flipping burgers, and he hates it. And it just continues to go downhill from there. If you want to go watch it, but don't tell me what I told you to. Okay. Um, but I, I, think it, I think it really paints a really powerful picture of what happens when people orient their lives around anything less than the heart of God. Here's what happens. You and I end up spending our lives chasing things that we can actually catch. And then once you catch it, what do you do? Well, man, this is how I'm seeing this play out right now in, in, in people's lives. I've been meeting with a lot of men lately. And, and I noticed that about my age, right, and they all have this sort of thing in common. They're, they're about eight years into their career. They're about eight years into a marriage. They've got some kids. They've got a house, right? But they, they're meeting with me because there's some sort of crisis going on. And it's usually in their marriage, right? They've done something stupid or they're thinking about it. It's just things aren't healthy there or they're freaking out about their job. But then a crisis. And here's what I'm realizing about some of these. I'm, I know what this feels like. It's like, You've been living your life chasing these particular carrots and you've caught them all and now you're not sure what to do. It's like you've been living your life. You said, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna grow up, I'm gonna go to college, right? I'm gonna get a degree, then I'm gonna get a job and then I'm gonna try to find a wife and we're gonna get married, we're gonna buy a house, have some kids and guess what? Check, 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 check. After about eight years of that, they're sitting around, I feel kind of empty. I mean, nothing's new and shiny anymore. So they think, well, you know what I need to do? I need to go find another, another relationship. I got to find another, another carrot to chase. Or I need a different job. This one's not doing it for me. I'm bored. I got to go find something else, right? But the thing is, the, re the reason why they're like this is because they've been chasing something that, that they could catch. They caught it, and now it's not enough. And you see this play out in all sorts of different places too. It's like the person who thinks, man, if I just get married... Right? I'm lonely. I got this void in my life. I understand that, right? Just emptiness. But if I could just find the right person and we could get married, then man, I'm going to be fine. I'll be okay. Then they get married. Three months later, they realize that person is not perfect. Can I get an amen on that? And no matter how great your marriage is, that loneliness doesn't totally go away because they don't fill that void. 
And the saddest thing is, is when that spouse starts to resent their, their, their partner because they're not filling that void for them. They, th- they think it's their fault that they're not happy. Am I speaking to anybody right now? Or it's people who've been living their whole life thinking, man, it's got to get to retirement. Put, put back enough money, we can go do whatever we want. Then they get there and they don't know what to do with it. They almost miss work. And this is what I think this is, this is getting at here. It's not that any of those things are bad. Hear me when I say that. It's not that any of those things are bad. Here's the key. They're not big enough. They're not big enough. And if our lives are about anything less than Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, then we're always going to live with this sense, this void. No matter what what we get our hands on, no matter what we accomplish, it's never going to be enough. This is what Jesus says in the Gospels. And I'll just say it like this. You know, Jesus on this side of it, Jesus is the clearest picture we're going to get of what the heart of God looks like. I mean, he is the heart of God in flesh and blood. At the same time, Jesus sends the spirit to us so that we can share the heart of God. That's incredible to think about. But in the gospels, Jesus says this to us. And don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. You're collecting a bunch of stuff that's going to rust. It's going to rot. Right? Don't chase all of that. Don't worry about your life. But instead, here's what I want you to do. Seek first the kingdom of of God and his righteousness. And then all that other stuff, it's got this way of just sort of taking care of itself. And I've found that when we orient ourselves around who God is and what God is about, especially in the person of Jesus Christ, then here's what it does. It gives us proper perspective on all that other stuff. And here's the key. It gives us the freedom to actually enjoy them for what they are. Not replacements for God, but gifts from God. And when you stop expecting your marriage to complete you, fine, you can actually come to enjoy your marriage. You stop looking for your job or whatever it is to, to satisfy some deep void in you, then you can actually find some meaning and fulfillment in your job. Because it's a part of something else. It's a part of something bigger than that. Are you with me? What is it you want more than anything else? What are you chasing? What's your heart set on? I mean, something else we can learn from David's life is this, is that who is greater than what? Why don't you say that with me? Ready? Who is greater than what? What I mean is the who of our life takes precedent over the what in our life. Now, these two parts of our lives, you can't separate them from each other. They are connected, right? They're enmeshed. Like, you really want to see who somebody is and what they're about, then look at how they live. I get that, right? But at the same time, the core of ourselves, who we are, takes priority and precedence over the what of our life. I'll, I'll illustrate this from David's story. So David's story starts in 1 Samuel chapter 16, right? This is when the prophet... Samuel shows up. God's told him it's time to go anoint a new king. Saul has lost his way. His heart has been turned towards other gods, other directions in a way that he sadly never recovers from. So Samuel says it's time for a new king. And he sends him to Bethlehem to this guy named Jesse. He's got some sons because one of those sons is going to be the next king. And so Samuel shows up. Jesse brings out his sons. And he sees the first one, and he's the oldest, and he's big, and he's strong, and he's good looking. It reminds him of Saul. He says, that must be the king. And God says, nope, that's not the king. This is when God famously says, don't pay attention to the outside stuff. People look at the outside stuff. I don't look at the outside stuff. I look at the heart. Right? So one after another, this is how it goes. Nope, not him. 
not him, not him. All seven of them. And Samuel's like, is this, this all the sons you got? This is like, well, no, there's the youngest, but you don't want him. He's out tending the sheep. And Samuel says, bring him. I'm not leaving until I see him. And as soon as David walks up, Samuel gets the God nod. That's the one. That's him. And Samuel goes and anoints maybe a 13-year-old boy. Anoints him as the next king of Israel. And then get this. Nothing happens. Samuel leaves David with a bunch of oil on his head. And nothing happens for another 15 years. I'm sure there's some really exciting stuff that happens in David's life that you can read about. But David, this is nuts. David does not become king of anything for 15 years. After 15 years, he's just the king of Judah. It's one tribe, one tribe out of the 12. It's another seven years until David becomes the king of Israel. So think about that. 20 plus years between when David was anointed and when David became king. 20 plus years of waiting to experience the fulfillment of what God promised. In those 20 years, they were not easy years. In fact, David spent the majority of them in the wilderness on the run for his life because Saul was trying to kill him. He spent a chunk of that with the Philistines, their worst enemy, pretending like he had gone out of his mind. He pretended like he was crazy so he could survive. Those 20 years were not easy, but you know what they were? They were formative. I mean, Psalm 78 says, this is what? That David led with integrity of heart. Guess where that came from? The wilderness. And this is a pattern and a theme we see all throughout scripture. All the people we look to and the people we admire, before they ever do the thing we remember them for, guess what? There's some time in the wilderness. There's a season of preparation. Jesus himself was not exempt from this. He spent 40, years in the, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. He didn't eat a thing. He didn't eat tacos or nothing. You see, it's in the wilderness where God does God's work. It's in the wilderness where God does God's work. One of the lies you and I buy into is that the greatest thing God can do for us is change something around us. Like fix a problem, take care of an issue. That's not true. And the greatest thing God can do for us is, is use something around us to change us. Because who is greater than what? I mean, it's like that with my kids. It's funny how I don't like that for me. Right? I want God to fix this. Make this easier, right? But when it comes to my kids, I'm like, no, 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 no. Because what I want most for my kids, I can't just give them. I can't buy it from at the store. I, I, I want them to have character. I want them to have perseverance. I want them to be kind. I want them to learn from their mistakes. It's the kind of stuff I know that they're going to have to go through some stuff. What makes us think God wants any less for us? There's this verse from Exodus chapter 13. Somebody shared this with me a few years ago. And it's one of those verses that just kind of stays with you, right? And you keep going back to it. I think it really speaks to what we're talking about here. But Exodus 13, verse 7, it says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road to the Philistine country, though that way was shorter. And the verse goes on to explain that, you know, if they would have went that way, they probably would have experienced war and they would have turned back. But the text simply says this. 
there was a shorter way. God didn't take that way. There was a straight shot. There was a straight shot. But God didn't take that way. God led them on the longer road. Some of you are like, that's the story of my life. I mean, you look back on all of it, man, it could have been so much easier, right? There was an easier way. There was a shorter route, but that didn't happen, did it? There were turns you didn't see coming. There were things that happened you did not expect. People did not keep their end of the bargain. It's not what you signed up for. And there's this sense like, man, so much heartache. Could have been saved from so much heartache. So many relationships fell apart. So many dreams fizzled and faded. There was a shorter way. But you and I both know that I would not be the person I am today. You would not be the person you were today if God took you on the shorter route. Can I get an amen on that? I'm only 34 years old. I like saying it that way. I know that's not old. I get it. I haven't been around for too long, but it's old enough. You know, you start having kids and you watch them grow up, man, life starts moving fast. It's moving fast. Here's something I've learned in 34 years of life. I think it's an important lesson. There's a whole lot that happens in life that we cannot control. A whole lot of life that happens that we cannot control. Outside of our control. We spend a whole lot of time trying to think we can, but we can't. There's one thing we can control, though. It's how we respond to what happens in our life. And we serve a God who wastes nothing. Wastes nothing. I don't believe God causes all of this to happen. I don't believe God brings unnecessary tragedy into people's lives to teach them a lesson. I believe things happen. But I do know this, God doesn't waste any of it. And sadly, this is something you and I see in retrospect as we look back. I mean, if you were to tell somebody about your life, I guarantee you most of the big lessons you learned, you learned them in a season of struggle. You learned them in a season of pain, conflict, heartache. I wonder what would happen if you'd come to trust that in the midst of it. Come to trust that, man, God's not going to waste this. God's going to use it. Because who is greater than what? God does his work in the wilderness. And there are some things in life you can only learn by taking the longer route. One last point, and then we'll go get some tacos. Sound good? Can you handle one more? So 2 Samuel chapter 5, this is when David finally becomes king of Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 5. And, and he, it's 20 years in the making, right? It's been taking so long. He's been on the run and, and he goes and he moves the city of the capital of the country to Jerusalem. The city is called the city of David. Here's what it says though, verse nine. It says, David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from, ter- from the terraces inward. And here's the part I love. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now, if you were to translate this verse literally from the Hebrew, I love what it says. I mean, literally, here's what it says. And David proceeded from that moment with a longer stride and a larger embrace. Don't you love that? A longer stride and a larger embrace. Here's what I think this means. Even though David was king, the story wasn't over. But in many ways, it was just getting started. Something we learn about God chasers. God chasers never arrive. They never arrive. That's one thing I love when I read about David. And I think one of the things that really sets him apart from Saul, 
They both mess up. And David probably messes up way more and way worse than Saul ever did. The thing is, David's heart never got ahead of himself. He, he never arrived. He never lived with the sense that he deserved to be king. In fact, for him, it was all just like, what is this? This is crazy. I'm a shepherd boy. I can't believe all this is happening. He never arrived. In fact, I love this story. From, it takes place later in 2 Samuel. It's, a verse, it's in chapter 23. So David has been king for a little bit. And the Philistines have come in and they've taken over Bethlehem. This is where he's from, right? And, and he's, he's outside the city and he's surrounded by his mighty men. If you, if you read some cool stories, David's got this group of, of elite dudes that fall around their bad mamma jammas, right? And they're with him, they're hanging out. And David, I think he just makes this comment kind of offhandedly. He's like thinking back to his days as a kid living in Bethlehem. He's like, man, what I wouldn't do for it, there's this well that's right by the gate and the water there, oh, it's so good. I would love to have a drink from, from that well. And three of these dudes hear him say that. This t- tell you what kind of leader David was, what kind of man he was. They hear him say this. He didn't ask them to do it. They just heard him say it. They single-handedly fought their way all the way through the Philistines, went into the city by the gate, drove some water out from that well, fought their way all the way back to David, and they gave it to him. What kind of person do you think David was? And then guess what David does with it? He pours it on the ground as a drink offering to God. What do you think they were thinking? What's the point David's making? I don't deserve this. And what you did for me was way too great. There's only one, one person who deserves this type of worship, and it's not me. Man, I think our country desperately needs some leaders like that. I better get an amen to that. But see, David never arrived. Never arrived. He continued to live his life with a, lo- with a, larger, a longer stride and a larger embrace. You know, Jesus' invitation for you and I is to become a disciple. That's one of those words you hear a lot growing, around, growing up in church, and we kind of lose touch with what it means. We act like we know what it means, and we really don't. Disciple means student. That's what it means. So the fundamental posture of a disciple is that of a learner. It's somebody who lives their life with their eyes wide open, always looking for opportunities to learn something new to grow, to challenge themselves, to change. Proverbs tells us several times, it's probably written by David's son, but it says this, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is not some weird paranoia that God's gonna like change his mind about us, right? That God's gonna like smite us or something. Fear of the Lord is about having this sense of reverence that comes from a humble realization that there's a God out there who's not us. There's a God out there who no matter how much we learn about him, there's still infinitely more for us to learn. Never gain any ground on God. There are countless opportunities to learn something new every day. This is a question I ask myself. I try to ask it every single day. I ask, what are you learning? What did you learn today? I try to get my kids to ask that same question because I believe there are opportunities all the time, but half the time we're sleepwalking too busy looking at our phones or checked out doing something else and we miss all these opportunities to learn. At the same time, what are you pointing your soul at? We, we live sometimes like we're, like we're victims, like we're slaves to our passions, like we can't really help what we care about. So I just care about Gamecock football. I can't help it. I just came out of the womb. I cared about Gamecock football. Talking to myself here, okay? Never mind the fact that you've, you know, read like 15 articles and you've listened to every second available on ESPN you know, university, never mind any of that every single day. You make time for that, right? No wonder you care about it more than you care about anything else. 
And it's like what, what we point our souls at, what we open ourselves up to really begins to influence and drive our passions. How much time are you carving out to point your soul to stuff that actually matters? Hey, Jesus has called you to be a disciple, called you to be a learner. What's that look like for you? How are you challenging yourself? If you're looking for some opportunities, come talk to me. I'd love to point you in the right direction. Here in a moment, Jack's going to lead us through one last song. But I don't want us to rush out of here. I don't want you to hear this word and tell me thanks and all that. I want it to mess you up. I want it to actually bring about some change in your life. Because otherwise, what's the point, right? And so as we sing to this last song, I just want us to, can we go into a prayerful attitude, prayerful spirit? I mean, God isn't somewhere else. God is right here in this room, and God wants to do something in your life. I believe that. So even if you wouldn't mind, just close your eyes. I'm going to just, some, some final thoughts, maybe how this might show up in your life. I mean, maybe for you, when it comes down to that, that simple question, what do you want? You know the answer. It's not God. It's something else. It's something less. A real honest prayer that I, I often pray when I find myself there is, is this. It's, it's, God, I don't want you, but I want to want you. Maybe that's where you need to start today. This is one of the things the Holy Spirit does in us is it turns our hearts back to God. Maybe that's what you need. Or maybe you've bought into this lie that, that God's got to fix something around you. And I'm not saying you have to be happy for that thing or, or grateful for it or that you even have to call it a good thing. But I want to encourage you not to miss the opportunity in the midst of it to be changed, to grow. So maybe what you need is the Holy Spirit to help you put your trust in a God who wastes nothing, who does his work in the wilderness. And maybe for most of us in this room, we're bored right now. We've fallen asleep. We do the same things all the time. We've pointed our souls at, at things that really just don't matter. So what you need is God to wake you up, God to mess you up. Invite the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. What does it look like for you to head in new directions, to take a longer stride and a larger embrace, to do something new, something different? Whatever it is, come Holy Spirit, come speak to us. Purify our hearts to long for that one true thing and be distracted by nothing.